David is the author. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless this psalm, but we're also going to pray and ask God to bless the Merrick family as they're in the hospital and Daisy's receiving chemo treatment right now. I just saw a post from Britt saying that uh, Daisy went through the night without having uh, any severe nausea and she's actually doing pretty well today on her second day of chemo. So let's praise Jesus and ask him for his blessing. Father, you are so good to us. You are our good shepherd, Jesus. You prove it on the cross and the resurrection proves your power. That death can't hold you. That you speak a word to a little girl. You say, Talitha Kumi, honey, it's time to get up. And she rises from the dead. You are powerful. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the seasons, the paths of righteousness that you lead us into. Even though we don't understand them always, we know that they're right paths. Jesus, we pray for the Merrick family. We pray for Britt and Kate. We pray that you'd give them strength as they're in the hospital with their little girl. Jesus, give them rest and peace. We pray for Daisy. Oh, Lord, we pray your healing over her body. Jesus, we pray that you would take away any nausea and keep her from getting nauseous, Jesus. Please remove fears from her heart. Please make yourself so real that it's almost tangible to her in her room. And Jesus, we pray that, Lord, you would lift up Isaiah and bless him, Jesus, as his sister is there in the hospital. We thank you for them, Lord. We love them. And we know that they're not the only ones who are suffering today. There's probably many people in this room who are suffering right now. We pray that you'd comfort them, Jesus. Comfort our hearts. Restore our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. It's always interesting when I listen to music. I love music. I love listening to songs. And I love kind of trying to analyze how the artist came up with the chord progression and, and the refrain and the melody and, and the chorus the way that they did. It always blows my mind because I'm completely incapable of writing any type of song that sounds good. It always sounds horrible. But this psalm, Psalm 23, is a song. When it was written, when it was penned by David, um, a debate to whether he wrote it in his early days or later on in his life, reflecting in his life. It really doesn't matter. I tend to think he was reflecting. But when David penned this psalm, it was a song about following his shepherd. And he gives this 
illustration or this metaphor about God as his shepherd for two reasons. First, obviously, that was his occupation as a young boy and as a young man. Um, He would walk with the sheep. It was his job to tend and care for the sheep that belonged to his family. That's how they made money. He knew what it was to sleep out in the open with sheep, caring for them under the stars, protecting them, them against wolves and danger what it was to get down on his hands and knees and to tend them back to health and to talk to them like a person talks to their pet. Crazy, but we do it. He knew what it was to be a shepherd, and that's how he related to God. You're my shepherd. But not just his occupation, it was also a revelation because Jesus used this language of him being a shepherd in John chapter 10 when he said, All of the language that was spoken by David, that's me. I am the good shepherd. I lead my sheep. I know my sheep. They know my voice. They follow me. I lead them into green pastures. No one will pluck them out of my hand. My father who's greater than all, no one will pluck them out of his hand. I and my father are one. I'm the good shepherd. Now, the problem for you and I comes when we think about, we hear this song about following the shepherd, we ask ourselves, how can I follow the shepherd when I know my own frailty, my own tendency towards mistakes and failure, sinful tendency? What about the discouragement that I face in life, the health issues, the financial situation, the injustice that I see around me? What about job loss that I face? How can I continue to follow the good shepherd and say, yeah, he's leading me, he's guiding me, he's the good shepherd when I see pain? It seems like more and more this past year, I've, I've seen more and more pain and difficulty and trial Not just for myself, but for the people around me. Whether it's illness or finance or whatever the case would be, you realize life is is a life of pain. David says, I follow him because he restores my soul. And so, using this metaphor again of a shepherd restoring his soul, he says in verse 3, he restores my soul. That's where we're going to camp out in verse 3. That's why I follow him. He restores my soul my soul. He brings it back from being stranded. He brings it back from uh, uh, danger. He brings me back to a place where I need to be. He restores me. He brings me rest for my soul. Jesus telling people who were following him, hearing him, said, if any man wants rest for his soul, come after me, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my load is light. You'll find rest for your soul. Who in here among us doesn't want rest for our souls this morning? So, in order for us to find rest for our souls, we have to see verse 3 in a few different ways. First, we have to see the problem of righteousness. Second, we'll look at the person of righteousness. And I hate to do this, I hate alliteration. I know it's so contrived and so 80s, but the path of earth <laughs> the path of righteousness uh, how we respond what we're to do so first the problem problems found there in verse 3 when it says he restores my soul and the fact that David would even say that this shepherd restores my soul proves that our souls need to be restored that they go astray that they wander that they're broken that the if the shepherd is going to lead me he needs to make me right again 
And as David says, he restores my soul. He focuses in on this word. He leads me in paths of righteousness. There's no place in the Bible where salvation's mentioned apart from the word righteousness. Um, in fact, you can even make a case that the Bible and the theme of the Bible is the righteousness of God. And that in the Bible, the word righteousness is really a relational term. Um, it's a term that means to be right, to be received by another party, by somebody, to find favor, to be welcomed. It's the opposite of being rejected. So immorality is not the opposite of righteousness, it's rejection. It's not, it's the lack of relationship. And in the Bible, it repeatedly says that God is righteous in everything he does. And there's no righteousness in him. And that there is no righteous God, but God alone. He alone is righteous. And when relating to God, the scripture will often use the word righteous or right or sinless or just or holy or perfect or good or pure. That's who God is. Now, as image bearers of God, being created by a just and righteous God, you and I were also created to be right, to be righteous before him. Genesis 131 calls humans very good, God's creation. It also calls you and I, when we were created, or Adam, upright. However, through the sin of our father Adam in Genesis 3, all of humanity has now has sin imputed to us or reckoned to us. Romans 5, 12 through 21 teaches that it's because of Adam, our forefather, and our representative who, who voted for sin in our place, much like a president who uh, chooses to go to war on behalf of his country. So also, all of the citizens of that country are directly implicated in the same way you and I have received sin nature from Adam. And as a result, we're conceived with a sin nature, with a desire to rebel against what is right. And everyone sins both by nature and choice. And the result, Romans 3.10 teaches that no one's righteous, no, not one, not righteous or unrighteous, meaning all of us are crooked, all of us have committed wrong, all of us have rebelled against God. Now, the problem is, like our forefather, Adam and Eve, we're still, we're, although we're born with a sin nature, we have a desire, because we're image bearers of God, to be righteous. We have a, a, a yearning to be made right, to be made whole. But like Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden, we tend to patch up our own righteousness cover ourselves so that we can be right before people or before God. Just like Adam and Eve, symbolically, when they sin against God, they know their own shame and nakedness, and as a result, they patch up themselves, they cover themselves with fig leaves, symbolic of the fact that you and I will tend to cover up our own shame, put on some exterior so that in some way we can be right in the eyes of people or in the eyes of God, and we do that through religion. Paul in Romans 10.3 says that the religious people of his day being ignorant or the Jewish people being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness did not submit to God's righteousness. 
Paul is basically saying that every person, you and I, we go about to establish a personal righteousness and everybody has a standard of what is right that is oftentimes not given by God. God himself is right, is holy, but you and I develop these standards of what is right, what's righteous, what's, what's acceptable. And because there are people in our lives who are constantly passing verdicts in our lives about what is right, what's acceptable, whether it's a family member, friends, celebrity, a, a boss, a coworker, sometimes we face rejection or sometimes we face acceptance based on uh, the right standards of people around us and we pursue those standards to make ourselves right. It affects a whole sort of areas in our life. I mean, fashion is this way, politic is this way, education is this way, occupation many times is this way. We adopt standards from people around us that tell us what is acceptable. We go about to establish our own righteousness, which is what sin is. Sin is not doing bad things primarily. The essence of sin is that I'm going to establish my own righteousness. I'm going to be made right myself. And so I set up other ways to be made right. Good things that I turn into idols and I worship them. Jesus actually said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What would it be that you would say, I have to have this in order to be acceptable. If I have this, I'll be right. I'll be satisfied. Some people turn to relationship. If I have him, her, I'll be satisfied. Only to find that that doesn't satisfy. And so they move from person to person thinking that I'm finally going to be right. Some of us look to occupation. We overwork. We over-obsess about our success or finances. Some of us turn to family relationship and because we've received rejection from our dad or from our mom, we want that acceptance and so we work and we work to find that acceptance so that we can be righteous or acceptable in their sight. Some of us turn to religion. There's one way to uh, distance ourselves from, from Jesus and his righteousness by faith and that's of course to live however we want to, to reject him by our lifestyle. But there's also a way to reject Jesus or to say, ah, I can do it. I'll work really hard. I'll be a really good person. I'll try really hard to keep laws and commands. But the reality is the Bible says that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory that is God's. And all we like sheep have gone astray. David says, I need my soul to be restored by a shepherd who is right and holy and pure and good because I have gone astray like a lost sheep. I think about reading Psalm 119, that huge long psalm about how he loves the law of God and he always does what is uh, pleasing in God's sight and how, oh, his heart's desire is to be pure and to love the word of God. And over and over, you just get this sense about, man, this guy is on fire for uh, the love of God and God's righteousness. And at the very end of the psalm, he says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. All of us, the most upright of us externally have gone astray like lost sheep. All of us seek to set up some type of covering, some type of righteousness, 
and it's never enough. God says, in my sight, it's like filthy rags, which is a very graphic term that my wife told me not to use. (laughs) Paul says in Philippians chapter three, he says, and I will use this because he does say it. It's very graphic words. He says, I sought to set up a righteousness for myself that came from obeying the rules and being the best person in church, so to speak, and being the most respected in leadership, but it was all a big heaping pile of dung. He says, now I seek the righteousness that comes from knowing Jesus alone. The problem of righteousness is that none of us are righteous. God is righteous and holy. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and our souls need to be restored. And so, we need a person who can do that. Because we've failed to obey the law of God, because we fail to love God with all of our heart, because we fail to love people and we've lived a self-centered life, hurting others or being self-consumed, the shepherd, God himself says, you can never do this. You can never walk a path of righteousness. So I will come down and I will do it for you. Which is the essence of the gospel. That we need a shepherd who doesn't just tell us, be right, do right, like so many religious teachers. Here's a set of rules, here is a roadmap, here's how you get to righteousness. I don't need Jesus to tell me how to do it. I need him to show me and to do it for me because I fail, because I've gone astray. And the answer is this good shepherd who says, I'll lead you. I'll come down and do it for you. I will live the law of God perfectly on your behalf. I will love people perfectly on your behalf. I will love the Father perfectly on your behalf because you could never do it. And the way that you receive this righteousness is by faith. The just shall live by faith. This righteousness, Paul said, comes by faith. But we have this nature that continues to want to earn it, want to work it, want to gain it. And we can't. You have to look directly at the shepherd today and say, I've gone astray. Even us who have been in church for a number of years, I go astray. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Paul says, David says, This shepherd, he leads me into paths of righteousness. It reminds us of this image of Yom Kippur, which is the most um, important day of the Jewish calendar. It was the day that the high priest, one time a year in the Old Testament, would go before God as a mediator between a sinful people and a holy God, and he would take two lambs with him into the Holy of Holy. And in the Holy of Holy, where no man could go, but one time a year, he would take one lamb and he would, it would be a sinful, sinless, spotless lamb, a perfect lamb, no blemish, no spot, very precise. It would be symbolic of the sacrifice that would have to happen for the sin of the people and he would slice the lamb's throat and blood would begin to pour out on the ground and he would take that blood as the lamb is 
shaking and dying and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the altar or on the most holy seat that was over the Ark of the Covenant. And by sprinkling the blood on the altar, it signified that this blood, this sacrifice was now appeasing the righteousness of God, that God could wash over, look over the sins of the people, of all of their uh, rebellion against him, of their unrighteousness, that they could come near him, that their sin would be uh, propitiated. That's the theological term that we have from, from this scene that there would be propitiation, that their sin would be removed. Then he would take the next living lamb, a beating sheep, and he would place his bloody hands on the head of this lamb and would begin to confess the sins of the people. And then they would take that living lamb and then they would send it out, which is the theological term we have, expiation, that God sends away our sin, takes it away from us. And that lamb would would run away, never to be seen again, symbolic of the fact that God says, by my righteous sacrifice, I will never again see your sin. And of course, all of this is summarized and foreshadowed in the coming of Jesus, who is our great high priest, and who mediates on our behalf, and who he himself is the slaughtered lamb. The shepherd becomes a lamb so that he himself would be marred by the enemy, the lion, that we deserved. Because of our sinfulness, he becomes a lamb and he's slaughtered. Propitiation. And then he takes away our sin. Expiation, never to be seen again. That is the essence of the gospel. That God accepts you on the basis of his righteous, sinless, spotless body sacrificed for you. And by faith in him, he removes it. Expiation. And he justifies you. He doesn't just remove your sin. He actually gives you his righteousness on, on his behalf. And so that now, God accepts you based on the finished work of Jesus. And all throughout scripture, beginning in Genesis 3 and ending in Revelation, there's this picture that a lamb would come to, to remove the sin of the people, to make them right again. That all the sinful thoughts you've had today, yesterday, all the wicked and selfish things that you've said and done, All of your desire to live for yourself, your failure to love, your failure as a mother, as a father, as a co-worker to love, your failure as a child, all of it is washed away by the blood of Jesus, putting your faith in him. And now, as a result, the gospel sees our weakness as that of a lamb, a sheep, who need a shepherd to restore us. Obviously, you heard last week Dave Lomas talk about the nature of sheep. Sheep are, as he said, not the smartest animal, um, and they're not the strongest of animal. They're weak. But it's in the weakness of the sheep that God comes. Not in what you can do and how well you've performed. It's because you're weak. And because you can't help yourself. But there's one thing that we often overlook. It's not just the weakness of the sheep that that the shepherd comes to save It's in the value of the lamb. That the shepherd values you. 
values David. David says, I've been a shepherd. I would never run after, I would never leave the 99, as Jesus says, and run after the one stupid lost one who keeps getting lost and get down on the ground and get dirty myself and say, when are you going to learn? And rub his legs again as a, a, a shepherd would do to the sheep who had been cast or cast down, fallen down. I would never do that unless I valued it. Unless it was some value, it, it, it of course was a value to David because it belonged to his family. But to Jesus, he would never come on your behalf and die for you unless you were of supreme value. All of us seek to establish, to find our value and our worth and our acceptance in so many other things. Jesus said, I will come and I will take your place because you're valued in my eyes. That's why over and over he gives the parable of the lost coin. And when they find it, they rejoices. The lost sheep. And when he finds it, he goes after it, he rejoices. If you're a parent, you know what it is to deeply value your children. If they're lost, you do whatever, it can, whatever you can do to find them. You'll spend days on end in the hospital with them, like my good friend is doing with his daughter. But that's just a shadow of the value that God has for his sheep. And in the gospel, we find a few things. We find acceptance. That the determining factor is not, if my relationship with God is not based on my past or on my present, what I've done or have not done, it's based on Christ's past and his present. And it doesn't matter what kind of day I've had today or yesterday, he has promised still to lead me. Isn't that good news? And that it's given to me by God without deserving it, without working for it. That's the righteousness of Christ, Christian righteousness. And so what's the answer to us having gone astray and trying to steal righteousness from all other areas, the answer is the gospel. The gospel is that you've got to stop stealing your righteousness from other people, other paths, from yourself, and self-acceptance from every other place, and say that the real verdict by the only person who matters is in. He's declared me just, right, pure. And that in religion, here's the difference between religion, as Tim Keller says often. In religion, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's religion. In the gospel, it's I'm accepted, that's why I obey. I'm accepted, and therefore I obey, to the glory of Jesus. Not only are we accepted, but we're loved in the gospel. It proves his love for me that the gospel is that I admit that I'm really, I really am unacceptable before God. That, that's why I, we become so defensive when people criticize us, isn't it? We want to establish our righteousness. No, I didn't do that. I didn't say it like that. I said it like this. I'm not that way. I'm like this. But in reality, we're far worse. The gospel frees me from having to be defensive, which is my nature. And it frees me to say, Mm, you may have that wrong, I'm not sure, may or may, may, may or may not be right. But that's not even the worst of it. You don't even know the worst of what's inside of my heart. But God does, and he accepts me still. He loves me beyond that. That as unacceptable as I am, I receive the verdict that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased because I'm in Christ. 
that I don't have to steal acceptance from other people, from the mother or father who may not accept you, from the spouse who may not be respecting you or accepting you, from the job that might not be respecting you. And I can look at those things and I can say, you're not my life. Christ is my life and when he appears, I will appear with him in glory. My acceptance is solely based on Jesus and it helps me to stop stealing from other people and leeching off other people acceptance and glory. Jesus said in his prayer to the Father, speaking of his love for us, Luke, I'm sorry, John, in his prayer, chapter 17, he says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. He says in verse 22, Father, the glory that you've given to me, I've given them that they may be one as we are one. I am them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and look at this, love them even as you loved me. For God to stop loving me, he has to stop loving his son because I'm in Christ. The father loves you and accepts you based on your faith in Jesus in the same degree that he loves and accepts his son who sacrificed himself for the entire world, something you'll never do. Neither will I. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' desire is that you'd be with him. Ultimately, death now is that you get to be with Jesus who desires you to be with him. The gospel is this continually coming back and telling myself over and over again that I am accepted in God and that it helps me. It tells me, as John says, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. It doesn't say, think about the manner of love God has for you. It doesn't say, every now and then stop and consider God's love for you based in Jesus. It says, behold, you have to continually go back to beholding the manner, the style, the kind of love that God has for you, not based on your acceptance or performance. It's otherworldly. It's a righteousness, like Martin Luther calls it, that is alien righteousness. It's completely alien to our world or to what we know. It's outside of me. It's a righteousness that comes by faith. And the person who understands the gospel says that there are things wrong in my life. Can look at things and say, God knows all of them though. He's covered them all. I confess them to him. I repent so that he can have complete control over those areas. So that I can experience his complete freedom. Much of our problems in our lives and in our walk and our day-to-day relationship, our righteousness with Jesus is a failure to behold the love of God for us, a failure to behold the righteousness he gives to me on his behalf. And once we're loved or once we understand that we're accepted and loved, we obey, motivated by love. Obedience motivated by fear or guilt will not last and it's religion. Obedience motivated by love is gospel. 
Therefore, I can love others. Therefore, I want to be right before God in my relationships. Therefore, I want to work to the glory of God, motivated by his love because he worked for me. Therefore, I want to be a father to the glory of Jesus because he's such a great father to me. Not with unrighteous anger, but with righteous, just, holy discipline in my life. Therefore, I want to be a husband to the glory of Jesus because it's a picture of what Jesus has done for me, for you, making you sinful, spotted bride completely pure and clean and accepting you and loving you and giving himself for you. That's why we are to repent of our unrighteousness, of those things that we cling to apart from Jesus, of our sin, of the idolatry that causes me to sin against God. I gotta have this to be accepted, to be pure, to be right, to, be, to, to feel good rather than beholding the love of God which transforms me. Tim Keller, in this quote, he says, so, have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? Should be able to throw it up on the screen. He says, no, nothing at all. For Christian righteousness comes when we know and believe this only, that Christ has gone to the Father and sits at his right hand, not as our judge, but that Christ has now become for us our wisdom and righteousness and holiness and salvation. God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness, sin has no place. So we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness, I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine and in my own righteousness, but I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is Christ, the Son of God, who knows no sin or death, but is eternal, righteous, and, and he gives me eternal life. Peter knew this type of restoration, this soul restoration, Jesus, on the night before his death, he said, pulls Peter aside and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. The thought that the devil would actually ask for an individual, we see it in the book of Job, to completely destroy, that the wolf would come, but the shepherd is there for him, for the sheep. He says, But I have prayed for you, Peter. Listen to what he says. That your faith may not fail. And when you have been restored, when you have turned again, I know you're going to fail, Peter. You think you're so strong and so righteous. But I've prayed for you. So that when you return, you would strengthen your brothers. Notice Jesus is more concerned with his long-term faith. He's more concerned, not so much about his current performance, although he wants him to have victory, but he knows Peter's going to stumble. Peter's going to fail, fail. But yet he says, I've prayed for you. And when you return, I will return you. Strengthen your brothers. Peter says, not me. I got a knife. <laughs> I got your back. And Jesus strengthens him on the beach after his resurrection. He calls Peter aside and he says, Peter, do you love me? 
Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than wanting your own righteousness? Do you love me more than your own dreams? Do you love me more than, than leadership or being a leader in some church? You love me. Peter says, after it says he became sorrowful because he asked him again, do you love me? He says, you know all things. You know I'm really fond of you. No longer boasting in his own righteousness or ability to follow him. He says, you know all things. And now his righteousness comes from Christ alone. David knew this type of restoration. This person of righteousness. He failed committed adultery, murdered her husband, was a failure as a father, failure as a leader, led tons of people to their death because of his own pride and sin. But ultimately, he can look back over his life and said, but God was always faithful to restore my soul. Maybe you have, uh, well, not maybe, you, you and I both, we have established our own righteousness and whatever the failure might be, Jesus is here to restore your soul. He's the person of righteousness. But then he gives another promise, lastly. He says in verse three, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is the righteous path. Once we're following the righteous one. He leads me in paths of righteousness or right paths and he does so for his name's sake. <clears throat> Shepherds would often have to lead their sheep into new territory. The sheep, being a creature of habit like most of us, was prone to stay stuck in the same places they were because it was comfortable. The shepherd was constantly having to survey the land, search out new territory for them to eat, to graze, to rest. The sheep on its own would continue to bite and feed off the same land, ultimately uh, acquiring parasites and just other things that would destroy them. The shepherd would lead them into green pastures. Like Jesus said, I lead them out. Sometimes God leads us out painfully into new situations. The promise that we're given in this verse is that he is going to lead me, though. That he faithfully leads me. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 27, Paul preaching actually says that God who made every nation of men made men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places that they should live. He's leading us so faithfully. I can't even tell you how I got, how my wife and I got here. Most of you have the same story. As we follow the shepherd, he leads us into pastures that we never would have chosen for ourselves. And although there has been a lot, there's been difficulty and heartache and discouragement, I wouldn't change a thing. How he led us from when we first were married nine years ago to where we are now is completely, you can't put a map above, you couldn't, I couldn't have followed a map to find it. I needed him to lead me. It's the same way throughout the Bible. 
God leads in different ways. He leads in some ways in Acts 13 through a a leading of the Holy Spirit in a prayer meeting. In another way in Acts 16, he leads by Paul having a vision vision and going into a land of Macedonia, but that's not the right place. And maybe we tried here, but that wasn't it. And God led them to where they needed to be. In the Gospels of uh, John and Mark and Luke, we see how Jesus led his disciples into the sea, told them to cross to the other side. And it brought fear and discouragement and chaos to where the disciples saying, how could you possibly have told us to come this way? Don't you care that we're perishing? But Jesus was leading them to another side. And then ultimately, he's leading us to the other side, to glory. So that in Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7, the saints who had experienced great trouble and and uh, affliction in this life, some were even martyred, they look at the throne of God and they begin to cry out, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord. Just and true are your ways. They begin to cry out praises to the Lamb of God who was slain for their sin from the foundation of the world. And in chapter seven, he's seen as the righteous, just, and strong Lamb. And in chapter 19 of Revelation, he's seen as the conquering Lamb and the conquering Lion. Ultimately, in heaven, in glory, they cry out, everything that you did, every way that you led me was just It was right paths, and it was true, and we couldn't see it. We could never have led ourselves there. We never would have gone that path, but you led us there, and you accomplished all your purposes because your paths are right paths, and you lead for your name's sake, not for my name's sake. I would never have aligned it that when we get to where we're at now, to Carpinteria, that my very good friend's daughter would have cancer. That's not a path that I would have mapped out. And maybe, even in talking to Britt, it wouldn't have mapped it out either. But you know, ultimately, even now, if we're sitting in my truck and he was sharing with me, I've come to see that life, although it's unfair, like Philip Yancey says in his book, Disappointed with God, although life is unfair, God is not unfair. God and life are two separate things. God is always just and true. Life is untrue and our emotions sway from one to the other. But God is always just and always true. And those who would be tempted to say, no, life has to be just and everything that you do, it's for, it has a consequence. Ultimately, maybe you're this way or this has happened to you because you haven't done a good job at this. You've not obeyed very well. Jesus says about the man who was born blind when they said, who sinned, him or his parents? He said, Neither of them sin. He was born in such a way so that the glory of God might be shown in his life for my name's sake. His paths are right. How do we, what, what's our response then? Quickly. First, you have to follow the shepherd. Follow him, trusting his sovereignty. Trusting that his way is through the sea. His paths are through the mighty waters, as it says in Psalm 77. They can't always be recognized. They can't be seen. You have to trust in his sovereignty. Follow the shepherd trusting in his sovereignty. Secondly, follow the shepherd comprehensively. That means in every area of my life. 
If you're his sheep, Jesus is calling you to complete obedience. And his commandments are not burdensome because of his love for us. John says, if we love him, we know this, that his commandments are not burdensome. They're actually freedom. It frees me from being bitter at God when I see him as sovereign, but I see life is unfair and uncruel, unkind and cruel because of sin, because of rebellion. We follow him comprehensively because shepherds took care of every area of the life of the sheep, every area. The shepherd was their physician, their provider, their feeder, their protector. And it means for us that we bring every area of our life to him. It means that it takes years in our life for us to come to a place where I'm delighting in the shepherd more than in the blessing. And when he doesn't bless me or free me or deliver me from this path, I'm angry with him because I wanted something different for my name's sake. But we follow him comprehensively. That's how we're to follow him. Because sometimes we're in the valley of the shadow of death. Some of you are there right now. And you're tempted, prone to say, aren't you leading me? If I had a shepherd, I wouldn't be mistreated this way. See, when the shepherd would go after the sheep, he would run after it. He would go after it. And we get this picture in Luke 17 of the shepherd going and caring for the sheep. But actually, shepherds say that sheep, when they're found, are very hostile, as hostile as a sheep can be. And he goes after the sheep, and he grabs it, and he throws it on the ground, stings it, wounds it a bit, so it stops moving and fighting, and then he picks it up and puts it on his shoulder, and he takes them back. And some of you are saying, why are you mistreating me this way? Why am I being mistreated? I'm being thrown down. And it's the shepherd saying, it's my way of bringing you closer to me. And lastly, we follow him as a shepherd personally. I love it over and over, David says, he restores my soul. He leads me. He guides me. Jesus says of himself being the good shepherd, I know my sheep. I know their name. And they follow me. If you are his sheep, no matter what you're facing today, Jesus knows your name and accepts you and you're valued in him and he calls to you that we come and we follow him. And if we're getting our name or our identity from another one, from another lover, from another spouse, from our career, from our, uh, from our identity, from someplace else, we'll continue to be looking. We'll be looking for the, the hireling, for the wolf. Jesus says, I'm the true shepherd. And lastly, we don't only follow him personally, comprehensively, trusting his sovereignty, we become shepherds ourselves, meaning we stop going to the rest of the world to name us and we begin to have a, an inner security, a confidence that comes from belonging to him, from looking to him to name me, from not looking to my security to be with the right person or to have the right stuff or to be the right way or to look the right way like we all do, but looking to my security in him and when that happens people will be attracted to you and they'll need you and then you do what was done to you you get to know people you show them how much they're valued you spend time with them you point them to the one who restores and leads that they can follow the good shepherd he leads us 
He leads us for his name. I want to remember that. Jesus, help us to remember that you lead us as we put our faith in you. You give us our righteousness. We are right in your sight because of Jesus. And you lead us in sometimes conflicting and confusing ways, but ultimately we'll be in heaven and we'll say just and true we're all your ways. But even in this life, Jesus, we want to follow you now. We want to point others to you. We pray that as we take this communion, this bread broken and juice, symbolic of his body shed for us, that the shepherd was marred on our behalf so that we could be made whole. We would rejoice in him and we'd celebrate and we'd confess all of the places where we've substituted other righteousness.